A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. What I've noticed is cooking sort of makes you a beginner every time, which I love, you know? And so anytime I get cocky and I'm like, oh, I've done this a hundred times, I don't need to pay attention. That's the time when I burn it, or that's the time when the log rolls off the fire. Well, that was Samin Nosrat. She's author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, The Four Elements of Good Cooking. It's an excellent guide to how cooking works. It's also cooking science for cooks who don't like science. I'll be speaking to her later in the show. But first, it's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to check in with Raina Javeri about this week's recipe. Raina, how are you? Hi, Chris. Uh, We're doing a Tuesday night supper. We run this as a column in the magazine, which means uh, not too many ingredients. Fairly simple. You can do it in half an hour or less. And we're starting with a skirt steak and a trip to Tuscany. So, Chris, this is a Tuesday night recipe. We don't have a lot of time. So, to get started, we're going to do a few things. We're going to make a spice mix of ground fennel, salt, and black pepper, rub the steak with that. And then we're going to cook the steak to medium rare, which is essential to this salad. It's about three minutes on one side, two minutes on the other. Um, And we want to make sure that we cut the steak in half so that it fits in the pan and gets a nice sear. We're going to set that aside and then move on to our dressing. So, so far we have a pan-seared steak, nothing new about that, but you're making a little salad out of it with pepidus. So what are pepidus? So, Chris, pepidus are a brand name of a type of pepper that come from South Africa. They're a little sweet, a little spicy, just like we like it. They're usually found pickled in brine near the olive section in good grocery stores, or you can also find them online. And we like to add them to dishes because they really brighten up flavors. And for this dish, we're making a simple vinaigrette with olive oil, lemon juice, garlic, and the pepper juice. And then we're going to use half this vinaigrette to dress the greens and the other half to deglaze the pan. And what you get is a really rich, flavorful pan sauce that marries the flavor of the meat and the peppery arugula. So since this is a Tuesday night supper, this is like half an hour, right? Yep, under 30 minutes, and to serve it, we're going to slice the meat against the grain, 
and arrange the slices over the arugula. And then for each serving, we're going to put a little bit of warm pan sauce and top it with shaved Parmesan. That's it. Sounds pretty good. You have to make it for me, though. Thank you, Raina. <laughs> You're welcome. You can find all of our recipes at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You can find podcasts of our show on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. Okay, Sarah, you ready for a new batch of questions? I sure am. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? This is Mara from Brookline, Massachusetts. Brookline? I worked yes. in Brookline for... 20 years, yeah. And I'm around the corner from there. Oh, you are. You live in the post yeah. office right in the corner. <laughs> right near there, right absolutely. Near there. So how can we help you? Well, one of my favorite weeknight dishes for the family is chicken and rice soup that I make in the pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. And the chicken is moist. The rice tends to be waterlogged and too right. puffy because it's quite a bit of chicken broth. So I'm trying to figure out how to better make the rice so it's firmer. Well, I would add the rice at the end, right before you serve. Uh-huh. That's what I would do. If you look at the back of the boxes, they often say two parts water to one part rice, which is much too much water. For years, we used other ratios that are smaller, but we find that three parts rice to four parts water. So a cup and a half of rice, two cups of water, a little salt, bring it to a simmer, put the top on, put it down really low for about 15 minutes or so. Then I take it off the heat, I put a towel, kitchen towel, over the top, between the top and the pan, and let it sit another 10 minutes, and then fluff it. And that'll do it. The secret is don't use too much water. Then you'll get really separate grains. But let me ask you a question. Were you trying to do it all in the pressure cooker at one time? I was trying to do it that way, so I'd have it, like, turn it on and go. And walk away. I have a feeling that that may be asking too much. (laughs) That's not going to work. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you could use a rice cooker. You, for 20 bucks. you can buy an electric rice cooker, and they do a good job. Yeah, they're supposed to be great. I'm rice-impaired. I, can I can't. I think my problem is because I have an electric stove, and you can't really control the right. heat the way you want to. I agree with Chris. I think maybe you're asking your pressure cooker too much. It's not even the amount of rice. It's the pressure. It's everything that's in there. You're cooking two different things that cook at two different temperatures for two different amounts of time. I'm going to be really annoying now, which is so unusual for me. I know, really. Really, you've never done that before. How refreshing. There are these pottery cookers from Japan. Uh This is really annoying, but they have an inner cover and outer cover. You rinse the rice, put it into the pot with some water, let it sit for a few minutes, then put it right on the stovetop with the inner and outer cover. The inner cover has two holes. The outer cover is one small hole. Put the heat on, and just when it starts to steam, you turn the heat off. Steams for a couple minutes. Turn the heat off and let it sit. And it makes amazing rice. I mean, it's much better than a rice cooker or the saucepan method. So if you're crazy about rice, those are really wonderful things. But it's a little more work. But a rice cooker for 25 bucks, like the National Rice Cooker, is fine. Right. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate all these ideas. Thank you. All right. Take, take care. care. Okay. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hello. Hi. Oh, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Who am I talking to? You're talking to Cynthia from Fairlawn, Ohio. Hi, Cynthia. How are you? Okay. Listen, I wanted to tell you, our local paper had a little story about you last week with a really flattering, nice color picture of you in your bow tie. I've never had a flattering picture. Maybe you could cut that out and oh, send I, it to Let me to just us. say I recognized you. Oh, good. That's why I wear the bow tie. Otherwise, people have no <laughs> yeah, idea who I am. Right. So how can we help you? 
Well, um, my grandmother came over to this country from Italy when she was a little girl, mm -hmm. and she ended up making all of our holiday dinners. We always went to her house. She made all kinds of Italian food, but never had anything written down. So I asked her to come over to our house and make whatever she wanted that day, and I'd write down the recipes. And I have those recipes still. That's what I use okay. when I cook myself. She made pizza this way. She would take a tall water glass, put granulated yeast in, put a little bit of sugar, warm water, let it rise to the top of the glass, then take it and pour it into a bowl of plain white flour. Now, it's that question, is it good to put the wet into the dry or the dry into the wet? She always poured the wet into the dry, and I do too. Is there a reason? So do I. So do okay. I. Now, Sarah, can you explain why we do it that way? Well, uh, here's what I do is I make a well in the center of the dry. First of all, right, you, mix, that's what she did. you mix up the dry really well before you do it. If yeah. there's anything else in there, like salt, there should be. Right. And then you make a well, and then you gradually mix the water into the surrounding flour. Yeah. And I think you end up with less lumps, and it's easier to mix the whole thing. Chris, would you agree? Yeah, okay. except that so I probably... she did what she was doing. Yeah. She did. I use a food processor for pizza donuts. Oh, but no, no, I'm no. sorry. That's, yeah. that's, not, that's not old world. <laughs> oh, Chris. <laughs> oh, oh really? Oh, please. Yeah. So, well, good. All there right. you go. Great. Thank you very yeah. much. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, just call us at 1-855-4-BOWTIE. That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? I'm Adele, and I'm calling from Atlanta. Hi, Adele. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good. How can we help you? I have a question for you about soaking beans. Um, I was looking for a little bit of guidance on whether or not I should soak dried beans before I cook them. Unequivocally, yes. yes. <laughs> I've tried the quick soak method where you bring them to a boil, take them off the heat, let them sit. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work because they don't get as tender, right? And, and they, they're not as evenly cooked. And be sure to salt the water. Salting makes a huge difference both for flavor and even cooking. So Salt the soaking water. The soaking water. And salt the cooking water. But salt the, the soaking, soaking water, water to begin with. Yeah. Have you ever used baking soda for the soak? Baking soda, when you cook them, put a little baking soda in, it does work. But I find if you salt the soaking water and then salt the cooking water, that's all you need to do. Also, it flavors the bean, which is really important, but doesn't it also tenderize the skin? Doesn't what, that the help? salt? Yes. Yeah, the, the outer layer of the bean has calcium and magnesium ions, which are replaced in part by the sodium chloride and salt which means that water gets in and you have more even cooking. When beans blow out, there's uneven cooking, and the outside just explodes. So salting gives you even penetration of the water and even cooking. Right. Okay. Yeah, for years we were told not to salt the beans and not to add acid, and the acid part is correct. You don't want to add acid till the beans are just about done because that will retard their cooking. But the salt is a good thing all across the board and really flavors them nicely. It's sort of like when you add salt to pasta cooking liquid or rice cooking liquid or potato cooking liquid. It deeply flavors the item. Actually, we just tested that. Did you? Guess how many tablespoons per gallon. I'm scared. Of kosher salt. You I'm need. scared. Well, kosher we know is very coarse. What would you use? Uh, for a gallon? Oh no, I'd use kosher. But how much would you use? Um, what is it supposed to be? A tablespoon per six cups? Is that about right? We found that four tablespoons wasn't enough. <gasps> six tablespoons of kosher salt per gallon. Oh, you know the government would get after you. That's way too much sodium. Just a, another mark against me. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead and soak and okay. soak overnight if you can. 
Oh, overnight. Oh, okay. yeah. Is, is it possible to soak them too long? Yes, I would soak them eight, 10 hours, maybe 12 hours. But after that, I'd rinse and drain and put them covered in a refrigerator. If you can't cook okay. them right away. They, they'll start getting a little gnarly if you a let them funky. sit too long. Yeah. And also, okay. if it's warm in your house, right. they can start to ferment, and you don't want that. No. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, our pleasure. Thanks for calling. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with Samin Nosrat, author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, The Four Elements of Good Cooking. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I've read a lot of food science books, beginning, of course, with Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking, which I suppose is the Bible of cooking science. You know, many are too scientific, while others are nothing more than really cookbooks in disguise. So when I flipped through the pages of Samin Nusrat's new book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, I was pleasantly surprised to discover a convivial book about the science of cooking written in the vernacular. I started by asking Samin about the rumor that she taught Michael Pollan how to cook. Yeah, I mean, he already knew the basic. He's He was like, you know, in his 50s when I met him. So he already had been cooking for a lot of decades, but I definitely helped him brush up on his skills. Your book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, at first, uh, which I love, by the way, at Thanks. first reminded me of lots of books like Greg Kunz's Elements of Taste or Mark Bittman did a book on mixing and matching different things. And it's one of these books where it's not just a cookbook. You actually are talking about the techniques of cooking and it's dense. I mean, you have to take it's – like, it's like going to school and getting a textbook. There's an element of that to it. So here's my question. What's your evidence that you can teach people to cook without starting with recipes? Is that something you think is really possible without uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours of practice? Wow. You just got straight to the heart of it. <laughs> you know – I think practice is implicit in it. So I don't think you will ever just immediately be able to, 
use salt, fat, acid, and heat, or any sort of shorthand to, and get to cooking. I think cooking, it comes with time and with practice. But I definitely think that these are the four sort of points on a compass that will lead anyone to good cooking and to good food. And I, you know, in the beginning, I was a lot bolder when I first started teaching this and when I first started having the classes. And I really did believe that you could do it without a recipe. But as I started teaching people in cooking schools and going into elementary schools and just meeting various people, I realized that they needed recipes. And so now I think of them more as the training wheels for people. And, you know, getting familiar with recipes is a great way to learn the basic steps in a kitchen or the steps of how to navigate yourself through all sorts of different kinds of cooking. So, simple question, what determines the shape and size of a salt crystal? And just talk about why do they end up that way? Why is Malden salt that particular shape? Yeah, the main thing that determines the shape and the size of a salt crystal is the pace at which the water evaporates and whether or not anything is done to it once the crystal has been formed. So, for example, thinking about, you know, in the States, the two main brands of kosher salt are Diamond Crystal and um, Morton's, which comes in a blue box. And they are entirely different in every way, (laughs) in how salty they are, in how much salt per tablespoon there is by weight. And so if you're following a recipe and it says one tablespoon kosher salt and you use the Morton's, you're actually using, I think, almost twice as much salt. So understanding that the way that those two kinds of salt have been treated to create different textures and densities will help you follow recipes better or eventually get to a point where you're so comfortable with your salt that you can just use your palate to guide you there. So the diamond crystal is actually rolled through rollers that makes it flat and hence it's a lot lighter and flakier and it in some ways resembles the Malden salt from the Malden Sea in England a lot more because that's also in a flake format which is light and hollow and crunchy and much less salty per tablespoon. So how does salt... You know, everyone understands that salt enhances flavor in some way. But what you said in the book was sometimes, for example, it reduces bitterness, not by reducing bitterness directly, but by enhancing other flavors such as sweetness. So how does salt work to enhance aromatic compounds or balance flavors? I'm not a scientist. I'm a cook who has struggled to understand the science. So my translations of these into regular English might make some scientists shudder. (laughs) But, um, you know, I like to think of it in terms of almost like salt unlocking flavors for us. And so when a lot of times it works with aromatic molecules, and as you know, you know, most of taste is aroma. So that's like when we're stuffed up with a cold, we can't taste food very much. I would say the vast majority of our experience of taste is actually through smell, which means that when we have a deeper, more um, intimate experience with an aromatic molecule, our experience of flavor then is also more powerful. So what salt often does is either by initiating osmosis and getting some water out of a food and making the percentage of aromatic molecules in a food higher, then we get sort of a more more, um, intense experience of that flavor. Here's a quote from the book. By disrupting a protein, salt prevents the coil, that's the protein coil, from shrinking when heated. So the water molecules remain bound and the piece of meat remains moist. 
So put that into English? <laughs> Basically, for me, the way that I see that happening is, you know, we can, all, all, we can just forget about the coils and just think about a piece of chicken. So for me, a, an example of something I do in my classes all the time is I'll season some chickens with salt in advance, and then I'll season some chickens with salt right before I throw them in the oven. And then I do a side-by-side -side roasting of the two, and when we pull them out and we butcher them, you can see... Not only ha is are the chickens that have been salted in advance more deeply flavorful and more evenly flavorful, not just salty on the outside and bland in the middle, but also when I stick my knife in to butcher the legs off, the ones that have been salted in advance, the meat is so tender and falling off the bone that it really almost just falls off. The legs almost fall off. I, I, have, I have your chart in front of me, basic salting guidelines, <laughs> which I thought- a lot of chicken eating. <laughs> that was the best page in the book. And, and just for the listeners- <laughs> It was a very Chris Kimball kind of page. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I like it. Um, let's talk about pepper, which is, just drives me insane. Um, Me too. Everyone says salt and pepper as if they're equivalent, which they're not. Uh, and you point out in other cultures, you know, people might have a shaker of cumin in Morocco or chili powder in Turkey or za'atar, the spice blend in the Middle East, or sugar in Thailand or fresh chilies and limes in Laos. So the idea that pepper is this ubiquitous thing in cooking is just nonsense. It's a spice that should be used when it's appropriate, right? I 100% agree. Yeah. I always say that salt and pepper need a divorce. Yes. <laughs> like, yes, they do. So to me, they're just, they're, we, you know, in general in the States, we sort of, our cooking has more or less sort of descended from Western European cooking right. where pepper is really commonly used. And so I think people just sort of take it for granted because their grandma or their mother put pepper in everything that they should put pepper in everything. But it's a, it's a flavor that we have to think about. And so I would no more put pepper in everything than I would put, I don't know, kaffir lime leaves in everything. Right. <laughs> so so I, I, I try to be conscious about when I use it and I try to encourage other people to start thinking about it in that way too. I think you did, uh, you were talking about olive oil and I, I, I know someone was making tomato sauces at Chez Panisse, right? There was a contest mm -hmm. and Alice was obviously tasting and she could tell pretty quickly if the oil was a little bit off. That begs a question, which is the very best extra virgin oils, you, you don't really should use them in cooking, right? Is that just to put on something before you serve it? Or if you're making a tomato sauce with a couple tablespoons of olive oil, would you use a very expensive olive oil for that, even though it's being heated? Uh, I wouldn't use a very expensive. I do agree that the very best olive oils are the beautiful, newly pressed ones that are so vibrant and almost neon green with all of the, you know, everything that's in there. Those ones do suffer with cooking, but that's not to say that good olive oil shouldn't be used in all cooking. You know, like I think one of the interesting things that I learned was that Americans, just because out of habit, essentially, we have a taste, we prefer the taste of rancid olive oil because that's what we're nostalgic for because all of the olive oil producing countries save the good stuff and right. send the bad stuff over here and we can't discriminate. So it's more about learning how to discriminate. And, you know, one of my favorite olive oils that's really not that expensive, it is extra virgin, but it's not the highest quality, is the like Costco organic olive oil, which tests really well on the independent analysis done mm. here in California every year. And it's super clean. And I use that sort of for my everyday cooking, and then I save the good oils for drizzling on top and for vinaigrettes. Um, how does fat carry flavor? I mean, I, I, I've heard that a million times. I've actually talked about it many times. Do, do you understand how that works? Because I, I don't. 
Um, back to the idea of aroma giving us the most powerful experience of taste and flavor. It's all about the aromatic molecules. And I like to imagine them almost like clinging to fat. And so <laughs> the easiest way I think to imagine that or experience it is to slice up a couple cloves of garlic and have two pans. And one pan has a few tablespoons of water and one pan has a few tablespoons of oil. And you can simmer some garlic in the water and sizzle a little bit in the oil. And then if you dip your finger in the water, right. it kind of just tastes like watery, garlicky thing. But if you dip your finger in the oil, it's aromatic and flavorful and the garlic flavor has really penetrated throughout. So it's a carrier. To me, that word carry couldn't be more better. Like it's, it really is a carrier of flavor. And when you put anything that has a lot of aromatic molecules in fat, it will, the flavors will be distributed and sort of travel throughout the food much more powerfully. So, um, Another question I've had is the idea that gluten, um, like a higher gluten flour, like bread flour, actually produces a airier loaf sometimes, right? Because you get uh, a stretchier gluten, it allows more rise in the bread. And then when you talk about gluten, when it comes to cakes or biscuits, you don't want to develop the gluten because they become tough. So when bread baking, sometimes gluten is is a good thing because it allows the bread to rise and actually become airier and less dense. But in a cake, gluten or a pie pastry, gluten is sort of the enemy. Um, how do you reconcile those two things? Well, so t I used to talk exactly in the terms that you just spoken of like gluten is good in bread and bad in tender pastries. So I, before I really understood how gluten worked and what it, what we were after in cooking, it was easier for me to divide it into this black and white thing of like, we want it here and we don't want it here. But um, when I started to do a little bit of homework and understand, and, and I started, well, ultimately I had to come down, to, it came down to the point where once I had to describe it to other people, I realized that that wasn't true. And I kept going to my friends who are these great bakers over at Tartine Bakery in San Francisco, and I would bring them these charts and I'd be like, is this true that like <laughs> pie is on one end of the gluten spectrum and bread is on the other? And every time they were, they said no, because there's very rarely that very strict division. And even in a pie, you do need some gluten to get right. everything to come together and to create flakes. So there's sort of a sweet spot in the middle, which is why we don't use cake flour to make pie. We use cake flour only for the most tender, delicate cakes and sometimes for biscuits. But when you want flakes or if you want all of the layers in a puff pastry, it's about a sweet spot. It's a middle place where there is a little bit of kneading. There is some gluten that has to be developed, but it has to be developed in the right way to get you that right texture. And that took me a long time to understand. Well, you're being very gentle with me, but I think I just got dope slapped. But it's okay. Um, <laughs> no, actually, that was a great answer. You know, the, this term umami's been around a long time. Uh, the last five or ten years, everyone's talking about it. Um, have we gone overboard here? You know, it's a meaty flavor. Uh, originally was discovered, quote-unquote, by a Japanese scientist. Uh, are we too enthralled with umami? I 100% agree with you on that. Um, 
you know, my friend Cal Peternell, who was one of my teachers at Chez Panisse, he is very clever with words and he always calls it to mommy. <laughs> so, <laughs> and often my experience of that has also happened with ramen. And part of it is, you know, just because something's good, more of it doesn't make it better. So I think it's great. It's a great sort of secret weapon for home cooks to understand and be able to identify where what ingredients have umami and how to work that into food or that sometimes when you taste something and it falls flat, it's because it needs a little bacon or a little ketchup or a little Parmesan cheese, but maybe adding ketchup and bacon and Parmesan cheese and mushrooms and, and anchovy anchovies paste. is yeah. maybe a little too much, you know? Too much. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, grill marks. Um, I was interviewing someone uh, a few months ago, Meathead Goldwyn, as he likes to call himself. Oh, he yeah. A famous grilling book, did very well last year. Uh, and he said grill marks are a disaster. And I they said, are. why? He said, well, what about all the gray meat in between the grill marks? He exactly. Said, so talk about grill marks. Meathead's my new best friend for saying that, you know? <laughs> That's exactly what I always say is if you're getting grill marks, then all of this other flavor potential is being lost on all of the rest of it. So I really learned this lesson by watching actually Alice Waters grill um, quails and sausages. And she was just, I remember I was really young cook and I had no idea. I was always so afraid of the open fire and the grill and this woman like as small as a hummingbird just standing there and she just was restless moving everything around making sure that everything got evenly browned on all the sides. And it was a very big aha moment for me to understand that it had so little to do with getting that perfect. I think it's like 45 degree angle by 45 degree angle mark, you know, then you're missing out on all the rest of the thing. The cross hatches are pointless. Time for philosophy here. So um, in Vietnam, I gather, there's a, a term referring to the right intent, very Buddhist, for coming in to cook food. You, you have to cook food with the right intent. There's a mindfulness to it. You're obviously very smart and you, and you love to cook. Do, do you have a philosophy of cooking that, that might be similar to any of those or different? Yeah, I, I, I have yet to come up with the perfect sort of language for it. For a while, I used to call it the three Ps, you know, presence, patience, and practice. And so if you could sort of have those things every time you come to the kitchen, that, um, that it would, that, you know, what you make will be great. And what, and it's, it's more about a mindset of like being okay with mistakes and, Really just being fully present, which I think in, in this day and age is really hard with the phone and the, all these things and people running around and stuff like that. And everything is sort of working against us from being to, – to be really present with our cooking. But what I've noticed is cooking sort of makes you a beginner every time, which I love, you know. Mm. And so anytime I get cocky and I'm like, oh, I've done this a hundred times, I don't need to pay attention. That's the time when I burn it or that's the time when the log rolls off the fire. Have you seen this at work uh, when you've cooked with other people or watch other people cook? Have you seen that moment where cooking somehow um, gets into their soul? You know, it's sort of a transformative moment. Yeah, I think for me, one of the most powerful moments was working with Michael Pollan, who is so analytical and so in his mind. He's so intelligent and, and exists so much in his mind. And I'm all heart and like body, you know? And so we were a funny pair <laughs> and I would show up and 
every time we cooked for the first like several weeks, almost everything we made started with onions or mirepoix or some sort of vegetable base. And so he, he, they got the hang of that pretty quickly. And then they started doing that before I even got there. And I think over time he started to realize that this time taking, doing this thing that he had always viewed as this drudgery of like cooking, peeling and slicing and cooking onions or these things that seem so boring and sort of like the thing you have to get through to get to the fancy part of cooking, they started to understand how that really investing that time and energy makes everything taste better. And um, I watched him transform. And what was so amazing for me was that I really saw this person who I view as a serious journalist and a person who takes science really seriously and philosophy really seriously. I saw him sort of turn into a fuzzy heart man <laughs> who... Mm. Came, came around and really understood that cooking is about humanity and it's about being together with people and that the time that we spend doing it is not time wasted, it's time well spent. That was Samin Nusrash. She's author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, The Four Elements of Good Cooking. You know, I was once dumb enough to stand up at a technology conference about 20 years ago and to argue that the promise of the internet to provide unlimited information was flawed because humans only need so much data to live the good life. Now, I'm very glad that nobody posted a video of that moment on YouTube, but I did have a point. Too much information can be a liability when pursuing the creative arts such as cooking. For example, I don't need to understand osmosis or the diffusion coefficient to successfully brine a turkey. But if I don't know that table salt is in fact twice as salty as many kosher salts by volume, well, that would not only be useful, it would actually be critical. And that's the problem with information. How do you know what you really need to know? You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals as well as author of Home Cooking 101. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're going to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Raina Hill from Chattanooga, Tennessee. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. How can we help you? Well, I have two teenage daughters and a husband who are crazy for truffle fries. And, of course, to make a great truffle fry, you have to make a great French fry, and I can't seem to perfect that crispy shoestring French fry at home. So I was hoping you could help me out. Okay, a few things. The traditional method is two fries, 325 degree oil, peanut oil. I mean, two rounds of frying. Two rounds of frying. Not two long French fries. Yes. <laughs> right. Good exactly. point. Fry them till they're very lightly colored, take them out, let them drain for 10 minutes, heat the oil to 375, and finish them off. I've gone to a lot of places who have good fries and asked them why theirs is 10 times better than mine. Well, they have a fry lighter, first of all, which helps. A lot of people have told me they use potato starch on the outside of the fries, and that seems to work. Uh, there's another method we did years ago, which is based on Joel Robuchon. And oddly enough, you put all the fries in room temperature oil in a Dutch oven, turn it on to medium high, and you cook it for 20 to 25 minutes and then take them out. It's one fry, not two. And the interesting thing about that is the uptake of oil into the potatoes is less. When you cool down the fries between the first and second fry, it's the cooling down where all the oil gets absorbed. If you put a French fry into oil, 
the oil won't go into the potato because it's full of you know starch molecules and water. You have to get some of that water out of the potato before the oil goes in. And that tends to happen during the cooling down period. So they were about 30% less oil uptake with that method. That's now, amazing. were they fabulous fries? They were very good fries. Recently, I was reading your old colleague, Kenji Lopez-Alt, and he soaks the oh, uh, yeah. fries in uh, vinegar water. And that really seems to help. Didn't he fry them at a really high temperature, too? 400 degrees. Yeah, that was higher. He does the two-fry for 50 seconds, and then he cools them, oh, for about 30 minutes. And he said, then it's really good if you really cool them and freeze them before the second fry. Uh, I did read that. Yeah. So, you know, you might want to check out his method. It's the Food Lab. Yeah, the Food Lab book. Yeah. How long does he soak the fries in the vinegar water? Actually cooked them. I'm sorry. He I said soaked. Up. He cooked them until they were oh, fully tender but not falling gotcha. apart. And they're about okay. a quarter to three-eighths of an inch thick. So that is not very long. I think one of the reasons there's a two-fry process with French fries is you want to make sure they get cooked on the inside right. as well as the outside. And the trouble is if you just do one high heat or high-ish heat and throw them in and cook them from start to finish, they don't cook properly in the middle. But whenever you cook potatoes otherwise, in water, you always start them in cold water. So I wonder starting them in, well, room temp oil has the same effect of cooking them all the way through. How do you recommend dressing it to get the truffle flavor without adding a lot of extra oil? Just use truffle salt. Well, that's one. And another one is there's a truffle butter that D'Artagnan makes that's pretty darn good. Okay. Thank you so much. I will definitely give these suggestions a try. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring, one 855 That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. You can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jared. How are you? I'm doing well. It's an honor to talk to you guys. It's an honor to talk to you. So I'm getting married in August. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, My fiance is kind of a picky eater, but I want to try and get her to branch out more. I was wondering if you guys had any suggestions on cookbooks for kids and like getting kids to eat new foods. And how how foods. old is your fiance? <laughs> <laughs> She's not a kid. Sorry. Okay. I should have prefaced that. Yeah. She knows that she has the pickiness of a kid when it comes to food and will only eat like a hamburger with pickles and mustard and nothing else. Are you doing the cooking or she's doing it? I definitely will be. My first thought is I have four kids and we didn't make kids food for the kids. We just made food. Maybe she just hasn't had a lot of experience with different foods, and she might be surprised. I, I, I wouldn't assume that she's only going to like hamburger and mashed potatoes. Forever. Yeah. Something else you can do is, I call them bridge recipes. Take a pasta you know, and use an unusual pesto with it. Take a steak. Every society almost has a steak. Every culture has a steak with different spices or seasonings. There's a Korean steak. There's a Japanese steak. Do fried chicken. They do it in South Korea. They do it in Japan. They do it all over the world. So do a chicken soup. You can do a Mexican chicken soup, a Moroccan chicken soup, a Sichuan chicken soup. So take something that's familiar and just have a variation on the theme. Yeah. And that's really a good way to get people to take one just step away. I mean, I, I wouldn't make, you know, hot stone pot, you know, or something totally different. But chicken soup, every culture has chicken soup. And just make one that's a little more interesting and 
sort of edge away from the basics. It's one thing I would do. Now, he did ask about cookbooks. Katie Workman has a good oh, cookbook right. for cooking with kids, and it has nothing to do about tricking the kids. It's just good, simple recipes. But I'd see, okay. the trouble with good, simple recipes, and they are good, simple recipes, is that's not going to expand her horizon, which it seems like is what you want to do. Is she open to trying new things? It's a sort of. I have two cookbook suggestions. Uh, Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything. You know, my own former company, America's Test Kitchen, uh, The Best Recipe, whatever the revised edition is, that has probably a thousand recipes. Both of those books cover all the bases. They're well tested. The the recipes work. I would have a book like that on the shelf as well. I'd branch out. I mean, this is totally self-promotional, but we're coming out with our cookbook this fall, Milk Street. And we have a lot of bridge recipes there, so you might be able to pick up a few things that if you want to step out a little. And also, I do think traveling. So I'm not saying you can spring to go to Paris or Rome or anything like that, but even take her to Charleston, take her to Chicago. Oh, we might be moving there. Charleston's a great food town, and there's wonderful Southern food, and there's also other kinds of food there as well. And just try to gently coax her to try something new. Yeah, thank you very much. And I hope you do move to Charleston. That's such a beautiful place. Oh, I'm really hoping for it. My fingers are crossed. Yes. Thank you you all very much. Thanks, Jared. Thanks. Hello. Who do we have on the phone? Hi, this is Cheryl Wong. Hi, Cheryl. Where are you calling from? Dexter, Michigan. How can we help you? Well, my husband and I are new-time duck owners. We have 10 ducks. (laughs) Wowie zowie. That way, that's the first person someone's called and said, well, we're new-time duck owners. Yeah. That's good. That's a first. Okay. Uh, (laughs) They started laying towards the end of this winter, and now we're getting about 10 eggs a day. Oh, my goodness. And so (laughs) I've been trying to boil duck eggs, and they're really hard to peel. Do you have any suggestions for getting that silkier texture? And then uh, the second question is if you have any suggestions for big things to do with a lot of eggs. Whoa. Well, I'd say invite huge crowds of people over for starts. I'm going to tell you my favorite way to cook hard-boiled eggs, chicken eggs. And I'm hoping okay. that it will translate to duck eggs. This is Sarah's favorite question. This is my favorite question. She got all, she, She's all excited. I did, I did. Well, I ended up working with Julia Child because of a hard-boiled egg. So I have a real uh, you know, love of hard-boiled eggs. Anyway, the way I used to cook them is the way Julia used to cook them, which is you start the eggs in cold water, you bring it up to a boil, you remove the pan from the heat, and you let it sit. She let it sit for like 15 minutes. Now I do it like till 10. 10. And then you get them right out of the hot water and right into ice water. Then somebody turned me on to a better way to cook hard-boiled eggs, which is to steam them. Now, I have one of those fold-out steamers, and I put it in a pot, and you put the water right to the point right underneath it, but not don't let it come up above the steamer. And then you bring that up to a full boil with the lid on, and then you turn it down to a medium boil, take off the lid, and very carefully, I use my hands, but you should use a spoon. Then you put the eggs in, you put the lid back on, you steam it at a medium steam. Again, I do it 10 minutes because I like a little translucency in my egg yolks, but if you want them cooked Mm -hmm. through, you take it 12 minutes. Now, duck eggs are bigger, so... You've got an idea how long it takes to cook them. So you cook them for the Mm -hmm. same amount of time you would have boiled them, basically, uh, maybe slightly less. Mm -hmm. And then, again, get them right out of the pan and into ice and water and let them cool completely. And then crack them a bit 
let him sit a few more minutes in the water so, oh, so the water seeps okay. underneath. So if you okay. have put the right. eggs in cold water, let them cool down completely, then you take them out and what, roll them on the counter with your hand to crack the... Uh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, and That's then put it idea. back in to the water. Yeah, just so that the water seeps. But it's ice and water, not just cold water. Right. Ice and water. Okay. Okay. And uh, I think that should work, but I really would love for you to tell us. Now, Chris, I'm going to throw okay. it to you. Ideas, big ideas for using many eggs... No, I don't have any ideas. You about. could make a gigantic frittata for dinner. You could. Yeah. A Spanish tortilla with, yeah. with the potatoes and the olive oil would be terrific. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a great Spanish tortilla. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be my favorite thing to do with it. Okay. Every, anyway, <laughs> do report back. Let us know how it goes. I will. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring, one eight five five four 855 That's 855 9843 you can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. You can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. This week's Milk Street Basic is pasta at the ready. If you have leftover pasta, simply oil it well with extra virgin olive oil and then refrigerate it. The next day or two, if you want to use it, simply heat a large cast iron skillet over medium-high heat and add the pasta. Stir only occasionally to allow the pasta to brown and crisp up in spots. This works with any style of pasta, including Asian wheat noodles. Now you can dust it with grated Parmesan and top with a softly set fried egg for a quick meal. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast is here to talk about the future of burgers, or rather, the burgers of the future, which apparently involve bloody vegetables. Dan, how are you? Good, Chris. How are you doing? I just have a feeling you're going to just take a, a totally different tack this week. Well, I do like to keep you on your toes, Chris. And, uh, you know, summertime grilling season is coming, and it's time for us to talk about burgers. Okay. You know, I don't know about you, Chris, but I have certainly, in recent years, made an effort to eat less meat. I, I'm still a, an omnivore, but I try to eat less meat than I used to. Have you, have you made a similar transition? Uh, I... I love meat. Uh, I do end up using it more as a flavoring than as the main thing on the plate, so a little bit less, yeah. And, you know, the, I don't need to uh, remind folks that uh, humans in general eat a lot more meat than we used to a couple hundred years ago, and there's a lot more of us on the planet. you got to put 13 pounds of food into a cow to get one pound of food for us out of it. The whole thing is just not exactly sustainable. So as much as I love meat, I'm trying to cut back. And burgers are a really interesting frontier in the effort to reduce our meat consumption. So the first entry-level step that you can try that I've been experimenting with is what people call a blended burger. And that is when you take some non-meat components and mix them with your ground beef. For instance, I had wanted a place in, uh, in, in New York made by a Chef Jahangir Mehta at his restaurant Graffiti, and he does a blended burger. It's about 25% mushrooms and other herbs and spices, 75% hmm. ground beef. And he seasons it with cumin and coriander, garlic and onion, almost the way you might season like a lamb kebab. And it is fantastic. Huh. You would never know that it was 25% vegetables. And it, it does have a different flavor because of all those spices, different flavor from a sort of traditional old-fashioned American burger. But it's you're using less meat, and it's got a much more complex flavor profile. And there's a million other kinds of things you could add in 
to your blended burger. Have you ever tried that? Chris? No, have but you that, done the blended burger. I've thing? never heard of that. I like the name, and I I actually like the concept. I like that. So yeah. it's sort of like a kofta seasonings. Uh, with mushrooms. Right. I like that, yeah. I, I think of it kind of like the hybrid car of burgers. You know, it's like it's using some gas, but some electric, so it's not using as much gas. And it costs twice as much to buy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. The next step up in terms of uh, where science is headed is, is that there's a lot of work and millions of dollars being poured into research right now for two different types of burgers. One is a truly vegetarian burger that can pass for beef that looks like raw meat, that sizzles when you put it in the pan, that caramelizes on the outside and stays pink on the inside, that has all of the different components of a beef burger, but yet is 100% vegetarian. And I've actually gone out and sampled some of these. One is called the Beyond Burger, made by a company called Beyond Meat. Bill Gates is an investor. Oh, yeah, They've been yeah. putting a lot of money into yep. this. And there's another one called the Impossible Burger, right. which is at a few select restaurants in New York and San Francisco. I tried that one. I found that both of the burgers, I was blown away, first of all, by how good they were. I, they're not at the point that I would mistake them for a beef burger, but certainly closer to beef than anything I've ever had in the veggie burger realm. That's for sure. Now, are, are these the burgers that are grown essentially in laboratories, or are these actually vegetarian burgers? No, these are actually vegetarian. Okay. They're made mostly with plant proteins hmm. and often uh, fermented wheat, which gives it a certain kind of funk. The, the, I will say that they have the coloring of the burger and the texture down really well. You get a very nice huh. crispy caramelization on the exterior of the burger. It doesn't have beefy flavor. But you know, if, if you want the kind of burger that's going to have a nice burger sauce or ketchup and mustard and, and you're going to put pickles and cheese and lettuce and tomato on it and put it on a big bun, you know, the kind of burger where a finely crafted burger might get lost anyway, you're going to have a great experience. If you want something where the meat is on display, you're, you know, it's still not quite there, but still very promising. And I actually want to do an experiment where I take the ground beef from the Beyond Burger and mix it with real beef to make a blended burger. And that, I think, could be huge. That's so like you. <laughs> you got your Play-Doh out, and you're going to mix the colors and, uh, and see right, what you Right, exactly. Got. But the real frontier that I think is the most amazing is Petri dish meat, lab-grown meat. And this, uh, the best way that I can describe the way it works is, like, Chris, did you ever get, when you were a kid, did you ever have strep throat? Yes. Remember, they would stick those swabs down your throat, and they'd rub it in that red petri dish and if something grows it means you have strep um yes i do remember that unfortunately right. well the, basically the way this works is that they i mean i'm i'm simplifying the process a little bit but it is not so far off from essentially swabbing a live cow rubbing it in a petri dish and then a burger grows yeah a burger grows i, I actually spoke to one of these guys a year ago at twenty thousand yeah. dollars a pound for beef and seven thousand dollars a pound for chicken which i think they're doing so yeah i mean look uh, uh the price point is high i'll grant you that <laughs> <laughs> thank you uh it, it's not there yet it's, but 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 the idea of it is amazing i mean they had the first live taste test of one in london in 2013 back then they could only grow the muscle not the the fat now they're working on getting the fat in there and combining the fat. But the reports on that were that it did have a very beefy flavor. And so if you can combine that beefy flavor with the textural components that we're seeing in the veggie burgers of the future, I think this is very, uh, it's very promising. Well, this goes under the category of things like self-driving cars, the mission to Mars, you know, things that either will 
10 years from now will go, why didn't I think of that? Or what a dumb <laughs> idea that was. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, yeah, well, no, I, I think that's actually interesting. The blended one, I, I think, is very interesting because that's it's sort of, as you said, it's like the, uh, the hybrid car. It's available technology, and uh, it, it solves a good part of the problem now. That's right. I mean, and if you think about it, if you're having a barbecue, if you're making 10 or 15 burgers, you're buying several pounds of meat. If you can use 25% less beef in those burgers, and if everybody were to do that, it would have a real, uh, a real positive impact and make some delicious burgers. I have a question for you. Please. You're a crusader for the inane, right? I mean, you're just... <laughs> um, hold on a second. I just need to revise my Twitter profile, and I need to order some new business cards, but yes, go on. You're talking about saving the world. You're talking about the use of energy resources. You're talking about the future. Is this the new Dan Pashman we should look forward to in the, the rest of this year? Well, Chris, I think that uh, in all my work, in one way or another, I am trying to spread the love of deliciousness. And, you know, if the planet can last a few more years, then that's going to be, you know, a few hundred more good meals for us. Spread the love of deliciousness. That's almost a (laughs) t-shirt. Almost. (laughs) Well, Dan Pashman, thank you for spreading the love here at Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. Take care. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful podcast. You know, my interview with Samin Nusrat made me think a little bit about salt. Salt has been a driver of history as a currency, the cause of war, and also the foundation for empire. Today, salt still retains its magical properties. Salt in coffee reduces bitterness. Salt in a brine improves the ability of proteins to retain water during cooking. And of course, soaking beans in salt helps them to cook evenly. My favorite use of salt is throwing it over my left shoulder, which blinds the devil who is always lurking behind me. So when you ask someone to pass the salt, you get history and magic not just seasoning. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify. Also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.